0: Clarity to our minds about who you are. As we've already sung, what kind of father you are. Help us see it through your words. Give us ears to hear and hearts to welcome and delight in that which you are about to show us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, earlier this year, um, I became a grandfather, have one grandson. Isaiah, I have another one on the way, Christmas time. Um, one of the things that I'm going to get to do as a, as a grandfather is uh, I, I get to tell my grandchildren what my dad was like, because they, they don't know him, my dad has gone to be with the Lord. They'll never get to know him in this life. Um, I, so I can show them a picture, and uh, it's my dad on the right and my uncle on the left somewhere in the Pacific in World War II. I can tell him that he was raised dirt poor in the Midwest and uh, grew up to, to serve his country at Iwo Jima and throughout the Pacific. And uh, that he, along with my Uncle Dick there, they uh, ran a successful small business in our hometown, little hometown in the middle of a cornfield in the Midwest, uh, Trotter and Hodel. It was a car, car business. You could take your car there and get it repaired. My dad did paint and body work, and my Uncle Dick did the mechanical work, and uh, I get to tell them what my dad was like. More than showing a picture, I can tell them stories, Uh, because I have a a, a knowledge about my dad that very few people have, and I can tell tell my grandkids a story about how when I was little, I wanted a go-kart, so my dad took a self-propelled lawnmower and welded it to the back of my wagon and (laughs) called it a go-kart. And I terrorized the neighborhood in that go-kart under the, under the illusion that that lawnmower really was a go-kart. But, uh, you know, he was a hardworking, uh, generous man. And uh, I, I get to tell my grandkids about him. It is the privilege of sons to pass on the knowledge of their father. And I think that's part of what the book of Hebrews is teaching us at the very beginning of it. We're going to study the book of Hebrews together next year. But it starts this way. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. Um, It is a stunning portrait in these verses and and what follows of who Jesus is uniquely as God's Son. But part of that description talks about how it is that the Son shows us the Father. Did you catch it there in those verses in the middle? In these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. The Son is the primary means by which, in these last days, we learn about what God is like because He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. So if you want to know what the Father is like, look at the Son, consult the Son. This is how we know what God is like, We, we look at His Son. And. That's what I'd like for us to do today. I want to let Jesus teach us about His Father by listening in on what is Jesus' favorite teaching technique, storytelling. Okay? Jesus loved to tell stories. You can't read one of the Gospel accounts without encountering a number of them, um, at least in, the, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They're full of Jesus' teaching in what we would call parables, short stories. Designed to teach us about God and His kingdom. And so, what I want to do today is consider six of them. So, uh, we're not going to consider them in depth, obviously. And we're not even going to look at what their primary teaching is, which is what parables are usually the way they are taught. We're just going to look for God in them and see how it is that the Son, in His teaching, shows us the Father. And We're going to find out in one of our parables, God appears as a father, and in another, He appears as a king, and in the last four we'll look at, He appears as a master and a landowner. Um, But there is a theme that's woven throughout all six of these parables, kind of dot to dot to dot, that shows us who the Son wants us to know the Father to be, and I want you to look for that with me as we go through these. We're going to start with one that should be very familiar to you, we just taught it, In Luke chapter 15, it's the parable of the prodigal son. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke 15. I'm going to bounce you around the Bible just a little bit this morning, but they're all in the gospel, so you don't have to chase me far. So Luke 15 is where we'll start. And let me summarize it since we just taught it. Father had two sons. The younger son decided that even though his father was still alive, he wanted his inheritance. And so his father gave it to him. And young son went off, lived in a foreign land, and squandered the entire inheritance and found himself in the midst of a famine, uh, a Jewish boy feeding pigs, wishing that he could eat their food. So he came to his senses at that time and realized that the hired hands at his father's house were eating better than he was, and so he hatched a plan to return to his father's house as a hired hand. And so he leaves the far country, leaves the pig pen, he starts his way home, and along the way, his plan is cut short because his father sees him when he is still yet a long way off. And he runs to his son, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, and he gives him a ring and a robe and sandals, and then he throws an amazing party because the son who was lost has been found. And everything is marvelous except for the fact that his older brother is out working in the field, and he overhears the music and the dancing going on, and he wonders what's going on, and he finds out that his father has thrown a party for his rebellious, uh, wealth-squandering son, and he is upset. The father comes out to his son and pleads with him to come in and join the party because his brother who had been lost, now had been found. And as we talked through it, I pointed out three really surprising things about this Middle Eastern father in Jesus' story. And I'm going to look at those again today real briefly, just to remind us what kind of father this is. In verse 15, it says, um, Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. This is the first surprising thing about this father. He gave this son his inheritance just because he asked for it. Even though he was about to prove himself to be beyond undeserving, the first thing we see is that the father gives. The father gives just because his son asked. Second thing that we see that's really unusual about this father is that this father runs. He runs to his son. Down in verse 11, of, uh, or verse 20 rather, or verse 15, um, the, the younger son arose from the pig pen and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. When this rebellious, wasteful, disrespectful son comes back, he runs to him. He he gives him a robe, a ring, sandals, a party, and not to mention kisses of welcome. Again, the father gives. The father in Jesus' story, he gives to undeserving folk. Now the last surprise is that he pleads with the elder brother to come in and join the party. That's, that's a surprising twist as you read the story. Um, down in verse 28, that elder brother out in the fields was angry and refused to go into his brother's party. His father came out and entreated him. That's not, that's not language that we use very often. I would like to entreat you to come to my house for lunch. You know, we just don't, we don't talk like that. So let me, let me put it a little more street level with my favorite... Translation again, that Hawaiian pigeon version. So the father guy go outside and beg him for come inside. He begged him, right? I, I love this translation, my spell checker, it drives mad. You wouldn't believe how many times it corrected all of that for him. But he's begging, he's not entreating, he's begging him to come inside. This father, he begs his sons to come in and join the party, his older son to come. Now, it's no surprise, in Jesus' story, God is this father, okay? That's who, who that father represents in the story. And he's not just any old father. His surprising actions towards his son paint a picture of an almost troublingly generous father. Who gives to undeserving sons their inheritance just because they ask. Who lavishes gifts and rings and robes and sandals on a wayward son just because he's returned. And throws a party so exuberant you can not only hear the music, but you can hear the dancing too. And not only does he give his stuff with striking generosity, he's just as generous relationally. He forgives, he pleads, he begs with his son. I think we could say safely... This is a very generous father. And this is is Jesus' father. He is showing us his father as only a son can here, um, as only the son can. And this is our heavenly father in this story. What does it mean for us to have a father like this? Well, I mean, obviously, it means we get far more than we deserve, that's for sure. But I think too, enabled to be secure in our Father's generosity, we are then free to be generous like Him, kind of like Father, like Son's kind of thing. Our God is the generous Father in Jesus' story. Now in our next parable, you'll have to jump over to Matthew 18, and this time God appears in Jesus' story not as a father, but as a king. And it starts down in verse 21. I'll read this one to you in its entirety. So Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. And Jesus said, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. And so his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. And when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant. I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. So clearly, right, the main point of this story Jesus is telling is about forgiveness. And it, you could summarize it this way. Forgive as you have been forgiven or else, right? It almost ends with a threat. You know, also my heavenly father will do to you, every one of you, if you don't forgive your brother from the heart. Um, Man, how this servant was forgiven is really kind of the linchpin of the the story. Um, He was forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents. Now, talents, we're not talking about playing piano and singing kind of talents. It's a measure of of wealth. It's a monetary resource, and it's difficult to bring it exactly into our day in terms of amount. But one scholar took a shot at it, and he ended up just shy of 10 billion with a B dollars. $10 $10 billion. Another, another one says that the idea here is what our kids would say when they'd say, I've got a gazillion pennies in my bank. A gazillion. It's just more than you could ever count. It's an unfathomable amount. This is a huge, unpayable debt. And when they heard Jesus say this amount, they would have, their, their jaws would have dropped open. I mean, this is a staggering debt, more befitting a nation than a person. One estimate was that it would have taken this servant, if he was a typical worker in their day, it would have taken him 200,000 years to pay off this debt. 200,000 years. What does the king do? He forgives it all. All 10 billion of it. All 200,000 years of it. Um. So I think we could rightly call this king in this story a generous king, don't you think? Uh, Lavishly, crazily, excessively generous king, a $10 billion kind of generous king. And again, God is this crazy generous king in this story. He represents God. This is what God is like. What does it mean for you and me to have a king like this? Well, clearly, the moral of the story is we're to forgive as we have been forgiven. And in this story, we are the servant with the unpayable debt. Our sin is a $10 billion debt that we can't work off. It would take us 200,000 years to work off our sin. It simply can't be done. The penalty for our sin is that severe, and Christ has borne that for us in His death on the cross so our debt, the debt of our sin can be clean and clear. If you know Christ... You know, 200,000 years of debt forgiveness. And having received such wildly generous forgiveness, according to the parable, we ought to be super eager to pass it on, to be generous in turn with our forgiveness. You know, followers of Jesus who've received this kind of forgiveness, we ought to be the last person ever to hold a grudge. Our God... Is this generous king in Jesus' story? Now, in the remaining stories, God is going to show up as the master of the house or or the owner of the property. And um, if you want to flip to Luke, Luke chapter 14 is where we'll be next in, in this next one. Luke chapter 14, Jesus says, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, um, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is now ready. But they all alike begin to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. Please have me excused. And if you read the rest of the story, on and on they go. Each one of them making excuses and no one comes. Lots of excuses. No one decides to come. Well, The owner of the house, the master here, says to his servant, Come, or the servant came and reported these things, all these excuses, to his master. And the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, Go out quickly to the streets and and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame." And the servant said, Sir, what you commanded has been done, and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled, for I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste my banquet. And the story ends on a kind of exclusive, almost bitter-sounding note, right? Like like people are being invited just so those first guys don't get a shot to get in, Um, But I don't want want you to feel like that's the primary motivation behind the master's actions in this story. It's easy to miss what went on earlier. Look look at how the story starts in verse 16. The master said to him, or Jesus said to them, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. He's inviting many to this party. And down in verse 23, it says, The master said to the servant, Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house may be filled. He wants his house full of guests. You get the sense this king really wants to have a party. He really wants company. He wants friends over. He wants a great banquet with many guests, house full of friends who will share his joy. So great is His desire for this that when the invited guests decline, He invites the unwanted and the disenfranchised and the outcasts, what, what might be called a basket of deplorables. And then this master says, come on in. We, I want you at my banquet. He has so much joy, you get the sense He just has to share it with somebody, lots of somebodies. And again, God is this master in Jesus' story. He really wants to throw a lavish party, and probably an expensive party too. That's our master, those of us who follow Christ What's it like to have a master like that? A king who wants his house full of guests, even ones that no one else would ever think of inviting. And I personally find it freeing because you don't have to be good enough for this invite. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to, you don't have to be from the right lineage or you don't have to have the right income or you don't have to have the right connections And there's room for your friends, too. You can bring your friends to this party, to this great banquet that the master's throwing. God is portrayed in Jesus' stories as an extremely gracious, welcoming master of the house, a house that has room for us all, for all who will accept the invitation. God is the generous master. Now, there's another parable. That portrays God as the master of the house or the owner of the property. And again, it's in Matthew 20. And again, I've taught this one recently, so I'm going to summarize it a bit after I set it up for you. Matthew 20, verse 1, the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. So he goes out, 6 o'clock in the morning, he hires workers, and he does it again at 9 o'clock. He does it again at 12 o'clock. He hires more workers at 3 o'clock, and then at 5 o'clock, with only one hour left in the workday, he hires another group of workers to come work in his his vineyard. Um, And as they line up to get paid at the end of the day, the guys in the back of the line who've been out in the fields for 12 hours notice that the guys in the front of the line who've only worked one hour are getting paid the same amount of money they were promised, and they start to get excited until they get there, and they're only paid what they were promised. And then they start to grumble because the guys who worked one hour are paid the same that they are being paid. And the master responds this way down in verse 14. He says, to those who were grumbling, who'd worked all day in the fields, take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. So, in this story, this, uh, this landowner, he is handing out paychecks way beyond what is deserved. This is not sound business practice, right? Um, if the first workers were making, say, $15 an hour all day, these last workers, he's paying almost $200 an hour. Okay. Now, were they uh, doing super high-quality work? I, I doubt it. Were they super efficient did 12 hours of work in one hour? Not likely. In fact, they were probably the worst workers. That's why they were still available with one hour left at the end of the day to hire. Nobody wanted them. Nope, he does this. The master of the house, he was just wanting to be generous. Just wanting to be generous. So he paid them all the same. This master overpays late hires and lousy workers. In the language of the parable, the last get to be first. And and again, no surprise, in this story, the master is God. He's like God. God... God overpays late hires and lousy workers. And you know, when I think about that, when I think that that's what my God is like, that makes me smile because I'm what the parable calls a last, okay? I know what I deserve from God, and I know that He is giving me way, way more than what I deserve. It's interesting... The verse right before this story carries the same kind of theme. Jesus is teaching in Matthew 19, the last verse, right before our story. Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. A hundredfold reward. That's our God. He he is the master who overpays. Another story, and this will stay in Matthew the rest of our time, Matthew 24, flip over just a couple pages to Matthew 24, starting in verse 45, and again, this story Jesus tells God is the master. Jesus says, who then is the faithful and wise servant, in verse 45, whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants or eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and in an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place... There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, clearly, this is a story about coming judgment to servants who disbelieve that their master could return at any time, anytime soon, and as a result, they are not expectantly ready. And the language is terrifying. They'll cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's a parable about judgment. What I want you to see is that even in a parable that has its main weight about judgment, there's this backdrop of the generosity of God that sneaks its way in as Jesus teaches us. See, the master in this story, in verses 45 to 47, before the story turns dark with judgment, God is the master who is lavishly rewarding his servants. Look at verse 45. It starts out by saying, who then is the faithful and wise servant? So we almost miss this because of the way the parable ends. But who's the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? So he's in charge of the kitchen, right? He's, He's the cafeteria lady who's putting the food on your plates when you shuffle by with your tray. That's what this guy's job is. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find him so doing when he comes, and truly I say to you, he'll set him over all his possessions. Okay? So this faithful servant, he goes from managing the kitchen to being rewarded with all the master's possessions under his care. Clearly this is intended to be seen as the great and generous promotion that you ever dreamed of, right? This is the best possible promotion. From kitchen cook to estate manager. Even in a parable, ominously clouded with dark judgment, the generous generosity of God in Christ peeks through. Okay. Last story, next page of your Bible, Matthew 25. Jesus says, starting in verse 14, It will be like a man, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, same thing happens with the two-talent servant. He comes. He's got two talents more. He gives them to his master. The master says, you've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Same basic idea, but not so much with the one talent servant. Down in verse 24, he who also had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed, so I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I am not sown and gather where I have scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents, for to everyone who has will be more given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and Cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Okay, another, another story about judgment. It shouts a warning. You really want to be found faithful when this master returns. right? And again, the master represents God. Notice again, though, the radical generosity that's hidden in the actions of the master, even in a parable that's about his judgment. So the one servant gets five talents, and then from his master he gets five more, or, and then he earns five more. So he starts with five talents, and again, a talent, not like America's Got Talent, but a measure of money. And one, another way to think about a talent was that it was equivalent to roughly 20 years wages. Okay, so he gets a hundred years' wages to invest, a hundred years' wages to invest on behalf of his master. He is pouring this generosity onto his servants. It's interesting what he says to them when he gives him a hundred years' wages, right? And he invests it and brings him back two hundred years' wages. Look at verse twenty-one. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. A little. A hundred years wages is a little to this master. And what waits for that, Then is what is much going to be? Enter into the joy of your master. What is that going to be like? If, If this master in Jesus' stories who is our God, considers a hundred years wages just a little, just a little, who gives the most generous of promotion, who delights to overpay his workers, who desperately wants to share his joy with a house full of undeserving folks. Um, This is a generous master. God, our God, is the generous master in these stories. You know, if you connect the dots, all six of these parables, There's this backdrop in all of them of the generosity of God, even when the parables emphasize almost opposite traits, like the severity of God's judgments. The themes of generosity and charitability and lavish grace, they're still there. They still linger there. It's almost inescapable. So prominent is the generosity of God in Jesus' mind. Jesus knows God to be that generous father. He's a, he's a lavishly generous king. He's a generous master. So that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7 if you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Right? How much more? Will God be generous? When we grasp the generosity of God, then we are free to trust Him all the more. Um, and then we could say with Paul, who was exemplary in this, in Philippians 4, he says, My God will supply every need of yours according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. And when we, when we trust God to meet those needs, we are free to be generous to others, and then our lives become like one of Jesus' stories, revealing to everyone who sees the generosity of our God. Okay. You, you get a sense for this cycle. In Paul, again, when he writes in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter, 2 Corinthians 9, he says, you will be enriched in in every way, to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God." So God enriches you so you can be generous to others and then thanksgiving is given back to God whom your generosity reveals. We show people our Father when we are generous like Him. Now. Every year, this time of year, we step out of our regular teaching and we do a two or three week teaching on generosity, in part because it's the Achilles heel of our culture and in part because uh, our church has a great need that we present every year. Um, We call it our journey of faith. It's our our capital campaign that pays for the facilities uh, that we use every, every week. Um, we've been at it for a dozen years or more now, um, and we are getting very, very close. If we are faithful the next three years, by the end of 2019, we will be debt-free as a congregation. Okay? We are that close. We've gone from $2.9 million, now we owe less than $500,000 um, we, that we, if we are faithful, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to pay off in the next three years. And... But I've I've been involved in this from the start, and I want you to know that for me and for Steph, this has been a training ground for us. God has trained me especially to be more generous. Uh, I am more generous now than I was a dozen years ago, and giving faithfully to this need that our church has every single year has trained my heart more and more uh, to be like His in this vital area. And so, this morning, as we start um, the next couple weeks of teaching on generosity, I would like to invite you to join me. In two weeks, we'll make commitments for the coming year, and I want to ask you to join me. And there's a couple um, sets of you that I really want to ask to join me. Let me show you something. These, this represents our pledges for the last year, okay? What people gave, not their regular giving to the church this is above and beyond our regular giving to the church we decided we would not build a building that was going to negatively affect the ministries of the church we would pay it with special sacrifices and so we've been doing that and last year people made these kinds of commitments and gifts to our church to do that and so what i'm talking about here i know recommends some very some very 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 sacrificial worship acts of worship on your part for which i am deeply thankful but let me show you something, um, this represents number of families, number of households that is, and it goes from people who gave zero in these first two columns to people who gave less than 100, 100 to 500, 500 to 1,000, 1,000 to 2,000, 2,000 to 3,000, 3,000 to 4,000, 4,000 to 5,000, we had one person in that category and then no one was giving anything over $5,000. Um, but what I want you to see, there, there's kind of an elephant in the room, right? And that is that the vast majority of our people there, the biggest, uh, gave, gave nothing. Not, not a dollar. And uh, I know that many of you are students and you are, you are dirt poor. You are barely making it. But you know, let me encourage you that the average American worker spends $1,100 a year on coffee. Okay, Coffee. Now, I'm not suggesting you skip coffee for a year. You would sleep through every one of my sermons, most of you. <laughs> All I'm suggesting is get somebody else to buy your coffee, okay? I <laughs> mean, let's just be practical here, okay? Because you and me, we need to train our hearts to be generous like God. This is the way that our elders have asked us to Enter into that as a church family. You should join us. Okay, that that should be the smallest, smallest of the bars on the chart. Okay? So if you're if you live over there, let me encourage you. It is hard at first, and it is good at the last. Come on in and join us. Okay, this year, join us in two weeks. Turn in a card, no matter how modest, and join us. Now. The other thing I want to I say, uh, it's a smaller elephant, but let me just say that Steph and I have chosen to live over on this end of the chart, okay? I don't think it's because we're the richest people in the room. I just got an upgrade and bought a 10-year-old car, um, so it's not, we're not there because of that reason. Um, we are there because we, we love our church, we believe in the work God's doing here, and I need to learn how to be generous. And some of you should be joining me on that right-hand side of that chart. You have the, God has given you the resources and you need to safeguard and train your hearts to be generous. And so I want to challenge you, join. Some of us should move over a bar or two to the right. Join me in that, okay? Um, Our God is stunningly generous and I want to challenge you, to represent, train your heart to represent Him. And in three years when we're done, when we are free from the bondage that is our debt, then we will have trained our hearts to be wildly generous towards things that are much more strategic, much more enjoyable to give our resources to, and we'll be eager to do that. Now, in 10 minutes, you're going to get an email from our office. Don't open it, because church probably won't be over quite yet. But you're going to get it uh, if you're on our mailing list, and uh, it's going to have a newsletter in it. It's going to have some information about the amount of money we owe, what we need, that kind of all the logistical things. But the best thing about it, it's going to have three testimonies in it: one from someone who's brand new in the faith uh, here at Northwake, one from someone who was just sent out by Northwake to serve in another place, and one from someone who's been loved deeply by our church through a really difficult time of suffering. Uh, you should read those. And I just want you to dream with me about what will it be like when all of our resources goes to lives like that, to changing lives like that, when we get free from the debt that we have right now. And so I I know uh, normally on your day of rest, I hope you don't read emails, just read that one today. It will encourage you. Um, There are three fantastic uh, testimonies of what God is doing, and I think just wets our appetite for what he longs to do through us in the years that are ahead. So you'll be getting some more information. You'll be getting that commitment card that will turn in not next Sunday but the following Sunday. And I hope you'll make that a matter of prayerful concern as we seek to, to reflect the generosity that God has so lavishly given to us. Okay? So bow with me in prayer um, at this time. Lord, um, it is us. It is... Uh,